Hi there, you are listening to the Guitar Speak podcast. My name is Matt Wakeling and this is the show that I produce in Sydney, Australia, where I speak to leading guitarists and guitar figures from all around the world. Thank you so much for joining me. Now today we have Brett Garsed in Replay. Brett's an incredibly influential and inspiring guitar player known in Australia, probably mostly for his work in the John Farnham band for many, many years. But internationally, Brett has a huge following for really his solo albums, his amazing solo albums, uh, the work he did on Shrapnel Records with TJ Helmwich, and also as a soloist playing in the band Nelson and many other projects. Now today's episode is brought to you by Fretboard Biology. The great course devised by a wonderful friend of this show, Joe Elliott. Here's some words from Joe. You're tired of wading through hundreds of random guitar videos and just want to become a better player. Fretboard Biology is your answer. Fretboard Biology is a self-paced, college-level program that will give you the right instruction, in the right amounts, and in the right order. You'll learn the same information I taught to thousands of other guitar players over 30 years of teaching in top music colleges. If you want to make real progress with your guitar playing, then sign up for a free seven-day trial at fretboardbiology.com. When Joe first started putting together the Fretboard Biology course, I was very honored to be asked to be one of the beta testers. And I can say firsthand that it is an excellent course, comprehensively written and beautifully paced. As a music educator myself, I'm always interested in how people teach. And I know that Joe, through his experience of being the head of guitar at GIT, and also the McNally School uh, has a wealth of experience, not only as a world-class guitarist, but as a world-class guitar educator. There is a link in our show notes that you can follow where you can obtain a discount to the course and there's also a seven-day free trial period which I encourage you to check out. Head to the links in the show notes. Okay, Brett Garsed, one of our most popular guests. Originally, this conversation was published in 2017. It was a two-part interview then. I've combined that into one show for you today. And with much thanks to Brett, uh, we get to, uh, with his permission, share some of his music for you as well. You're going to hear a little bit of the track Dark Matter from the album of the same name, and then we'll get into our conversation.
Brett Garson. Welcome to the Guitar Speak podcast. Oh, thanks, Matt. Thanks for having me, man. Our great pleasure, definitely. Brett, what, what got you started on guitar in the first place? Um, my brother, uh, my older brother had a guitar under the bed. It was, uh, I'm actually looking at it right now, it's hanging on the wall. Wow. Um, a Maxim by Maton. So it's a sort of a semi-acoustic looking, looking, almost looks like a jazz box, really. And uh, yeah, I used to, he, he had to take over the family farm at a very young age because our, our father passed away. I think I was only about six and my brother John was about 16, so he had to become a man really quick and had no more time for guitars. And um, I used to get the thing out and look at it and strum it and try and figure it out. And I had a, my brother-in-law, Greg, used to play and he tuned it up for me. And uh, so I'd get it out and look at it. And my brother, my brother was such a huge guitar fan. He had all the great albums like Hendrix, Zeppelin, Purple, you name it. So mm-hmm. Santana, Pink Floyd, you know, it was all there. So... I guess it was inevitable that I'd want to get lessons and find out how to drive this thing. Okay, yeah. And when um when did you start actually playing, like getting the lessons or what have you? I think I think I was about I think I was about eleven. So I was born in sixty three, so that means about seventy four. Might have been earlier than that. It's really hard for me to put a timeline on it. And every time I try to put a timeline on it, I get confused. So sure. So, but it was yeah, somewhere somewhere around the early to mid 70s i guess okay well wow there's a lot of great guitar music going on there were there any early influences that that caught your attention oh yeah well you know it's well documented that we were having a family party and and my other brother-in-law uh put on deep purple in rock and uh it just stopped me in my tracks and i said to said to my brother who's this and he said it's deep purple they're the loudest band in the world and i was like sail so you know (laughs) I'll take that. And, yeah, here in Blackmore's opening salvo to Speed King, I mean, yeah, geez, we wouldn't want to play guitar after hearing that. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. And um, were the lessons you were getting um, sending you in that direction? So were you learning rock stuff straight out? Well, it, I, I actually got lessons off a guy. Now, now what was his name? Uh, I feel terrible. I'm having a mental blank right now because he was quite a legend around around town here and a really nice guy only young dude and i only took four lessons off him Uh and uh but the very first lesson he said what do you want to do and i said i want to play lead guitar that was pretty much it so and he went okay so the first thing he did was put light strings on my guitar i there were cheese slices on there so uh he uh took them off and put some lighter gauge strings on there and he, he wrote a uh, I got his name's almost coming. Jeff Lyons was his name. Okay, okay. so there we go. I had to give Jeff some acknowledgement there. Um, and he drew, a, he did something quite profound on the very first lesson. He drew a picture of my left hand, and above every uh, finger except for the thumb, of course, he, he did a one, two, three, four, and he went four fingers, four frets. So it was great. Like right on that very first lesson, he made me aware of the fact that I should be training all my fingers as opposed to favoring, say, the the first three like the yeah, blues players do you sure. know what i mean it's, yeah uh, definitely so yeah it was uh he, he taught me some tunes like just some little riffs and things like that and I, I wish i'd stuck with him because i think it would have really done me some good but but i got sidetracked for some reason and then just ended up teaching myself okay and um what what sort of stuff were you were you learning or what were you trying to work out yourself oh well you know obviously i was all i wanted to play was every deep purple and Led Zeppelin and Jimi Hendrix song ever written, but <laughs> yeah, it was that was kind of in the deep end. But the, the very first song I ever learned was uh, "Pictures of Matchstick Men" by Status Quo. Okay, 
and just got, it's got this very simple opening riff. And because um, I used to get the guitar out and I'd plunk away on it and I, you know, I've quickly figured out this before I even took the lessons. I figured out, okay, so you, you move this way, the notes get high. You move that way, the notes get lower. That seems pretty self-explanatory. And, and I remember listening to this opening riff to this song and I'm going, man, how hard could it be? It's only a few notes. And so I just kept poking around until I found the first note. Uh-huh. And I figured it out. And that was the very first song I <laughs> transcribed, if you want to put it that way. So That's great. That's great. Were you doing music at school or were you doing any bands or anything around this time? Well, there was no music at school. I mean, back in those days, musical education in a country school, I mean, forget about it, you know. There was no time for anything as flippant as that. But, uh, but um, my cousin, Andrew, uh, he actually came up to visit me one day. We're just kids. You know, he rode his bike up to the house and I showed him the guitar. Hey, check this out. And I play him the four lessons that I got from Jeff that I've been practicing. And, and he immediately just said, we've got to form a band. That's it. And so it's all thanks to Andrew, really. I mean, he, he took the initiative and he actually had a job. He left school early and had a job. So he had some cash and he invested in a, a little amp and, and uh, bought another guitar and, and off we went. So That's great. Yeah, so oh, him and I just started off mucking around learning Creed's Clearwater Revival songs and uh -huh. things like that. And, and uh, he actually ended up buying the Maiden off me. Okay. And then I bought, I bought this awful guitar. It was like a sak Sakai or a Saki, which is Sakai, I should have been. But, <laughs> um, I was enthralled with it because it had a whammy bar on it. Okay. Thought, that's yep. got to be great. And which I promptly broke. I think I broke it within about two months of just trying to do the Richie Blackmore on it. And, uh, <laughs> broke, but uh, well, he went through a few um, tremolo arms. I think. I think that was sort of his trademark as well, wasn't it? Yeah, I can see why. You it's know, because yeah, trying to trying to copy the guy, just break him. So. <laughs> but uh, yeah, Andrew and I would jam together, and eventually we grabbed my cousin Neil, and uh, his brother was actually a professional muso. His brother. Uh, Ron Robertson was playing with um, who was he playing with? Uh, well, he was he ended up playing with uh, Broderick Smith for quite a while. So uh, and various other bands. So uh, he loaned Neil a bass and an amp, and uh, we grabbed our friend Ken and said, "You're the drummer. Go buy a drum kit." So you know he was, and that was it. So I sort of learned how to play within the context of a band, which is absolutely brilliant. Yeah, I mean, you yeah. just couldn't. That, that's the. It's the best way to learn. The only downside, of course, was because I was teaching myself and there was no, trust me, there was no one around to ask any in-depth questions. We were all as in the dark as each other, unfortunately. So even to this day, there's gaps in my knowledge that I'm just quite frankly ashamed of. But, uh, oh, well, I guess you you got to roll with it. What can you do, you know? Yeah, I think you've negotiated all that stuff okay so far. <laughs> well, yeah. When did... Um... When did you get into fusion? Because um, that's a big part of your, your sound. And even as a young guitarist, once you got the Farnham gig, those kind of influences were evident. What, what sort of fusion did you end up discovering? And how did you, how did you stumble across this stuff? Yeah, stumbled across it literally. Um, well, yeah, I, was, my, I, got, I got a lot of brother-in-laws. I had four sisters. So, uh, okay. so yeah, my brother-in-laws play a, a large role in my life. And my brother-in-law, Wayne McKay, uh, is even to this day is a fantastic drummer. Like he, he could have easily have been a professional musician, but he became a family man at an early age, and mm -hmm. much to his credit, just decided to play music for fun and and do you know sort of the odd gig every now and then. But 
but he still has the most amazing record collection. And I would go and stay with uh, him and my sister over the Christmas holidays, and I'd just spend all day burrowing through his albums and cassettes. And one day I went looking and found a copy of Wired by Jeff Beck. Okay. And so I looked at it and went, well, it's a guy with a guitar. How bad could it be? And my <laughs> God, I put that, you know, lead boots hit me in the face. And it was, it was like Speed King all over again. And right then and there, it was all about Jeff Beck. So, yep. and, and I'd say that was, that was definitely the first introduction to music other than straight rock. Okay. Yep. Yep. You know, with, with, with odd time signatures and, and chord changes, things like that. Like, and it was a really nice, gentle way to get into it. I mean, if I heard, Mahavishnu Orchestra straight away, I probably would have, wouldn't have got it. You know what I mean? Okay, it was, uh, yeah. yeah, the Jeff Beck stuff was a brilliant way to be eased into the fusion sound. Yeah. Cool. And were you working out um, tunes from that record? Yeah, I was trying to learn all the riffs, all the songs. I, I remember I, I worked out his version of Good Pie, Goodbye Pork Pie Hat almost mm -hmm. note for note. But, of course, the downside is you have no idea why these notes work what are the chords the chords were just agony trying to figure those out by ear i destroyed all my lps from putting the needle back and forth so many times and, and like from jeff beck i i got into uh larry carlton he was the next guy because my once again my brother-in-law wayne was working in a music store and he started giving me copies of guitar player magazine okay and I just thought, man, this is unbelievable. A, a magazine devoted to guitar. How good is this? Yeah, I, yeah. I thought you could only get you know, house and garden and stuff like that. <laughs> That's great. New, new idea. But, uh, but uh, yeah, it was like literally the second copy of that magazine he gave me. So I guess we're talking 78, something like that, 79. Okay. And Larry was on the cover. And, uh, and I read the interview just over and over and over, but I'd never heard any of his music. And I was enthralled with what he was talking about. He was talking about superimposing triads and all of which fascinated me, but meant nothing to me because I couldn't figure it out. I had okay. no idea. But I stumbled into a music store and there's Larry's first album, the one with Room 335 on it. Right. And I grabbed it and that was the end of it. So, you know, yeah. And then after that, I, uh, Eddie Van Halen came along. And, of course, everyone loved Eddie. How could you not? Mm. And through an Eddie interview, he talked about Alan Holdsworth. And so okay, I, sussed yeah. out, I sussed out the first UK album with In the Dead of Night on it and all that sort of stuff. And, and I think that was, my, that was my introduction to really progressive music, you know, okay. music, that, music that really was starting to do my head in. But, yep. uh, and I remember it was a good, a good example of how you should give, you've got to give music a chance. Like I listened to that album... The first time I heard it, I thought, I, I, I think I must be losing my mind if, I, if I'm going to call this stuff music, because it was just so alien to me. Sure. And then after about the sixth listen, I, I realized it was an album I couldn't live without. I just loved it. And, and so I learned that you've got to, you've got to give it advanced, well, music that's advanced to your ears, you've got to give it a chance. You know, it may, may soak in and you turn out you love it. Yeah, sure. How old were you around um, when you really d digging deep into this stuff? Um, I think I was about 16. Okay. 16 or 17. And like I said, you know, it, all I could do was just listen to it and let the influence of it wash over me. And then I'd, I'd do what I could with that influence. It's not like I couldn't walk down the road to a professional guitar player or somebody and say, what scales are these guys using, you know? Yeah, sure. So it was just, it was kind of heartbreaking in that way. Like I tried to find teachers around this area but uh there was just no one 
you know there was no one i could talk to about it and i'll guarantee i was the only guy listening to that music like no one else was i was really lucky that my i became good friends with the guy who worked in our local record store here yeah and uh ian bloom and bloomy and uh and Bloomy was amazing. Like, I'd go in with these magazines and say, find me this album, Bloomy. And, and you know, two weeks later, he'd have got it from America. Oh, so I don't, know how to, I don't know how the hell he did it, but he <laughs> did it. So, yeah, he really played a big role in, in me finding this music. That's awesome. Is, um, is your legato technique developing around this stage when you're trying to, especially like listening well, to Holdsworth and even Eddie, who, who was, was well, I mean, I was a, of that? Yeah. I was a legato player from day one. That's the whole point is like... Mm-hmm. Like, I played legato from day one. That was it. No one taught it to me. No one said, hey, you don't have to pick all the notes, you know. And the story goes, and this is a true story, and it also shows you how literally young people take things. And I I sort of understand why young people probably get affected so severely by social media and all the garbage they're subjected to now. If I read something in a magazine that one of my heroes said, it was the gospel. That was it, you know. Mm-hmm. And so I'm reading an interview by Frank Zappa. I was a big Frank Zappa fan as well. And uh, and someone mentioned just they, they thought Frank was a great guitar player. And Frank Frank said, well, I'm not really a good guitar player because I don't pick every note. And already I'm going, uh-oh. And, uh, <laughs> and he said, yeah, I'll, I'll maybe pick one and then play the next three with just the fingers on my left hand. And I went, oh, my God. I thought, you know, everyone was saying I was a really good player and, and – I mean, I never really thought that, but but I was I appreciated the fact that they thought that. And upon reading this, I thought, oh my God, I'm a complete charlatan. I've been doing it wrong. <laughs> I thought I knew it. I try to teach myself. I'll do it wrong. And uh, and I, you know, I, I immediately grabbed the guitar and tried to pick every note and realised I was crap at it. So uh, <laughs> and um, yeah, it was a it was a terrible time actually. And then just luckily. It wasn't long after that, because then I listened to Eddie Van Halen on closer mm-hmm. inspection and realised he was picking every note. Eddie wasn't doing much legato stuff. He was a good, he's a great picker. Okay. You know? All those triplets he was doing, he picks all of it. And yeah, I went, sure. I've blown it. You know, I've got to start again. And then luckily he mentioned Alan and I grabbed the UK album. I thought, well, I wonder what this fella sounds like. And the minute I heard him play, I recognised that sound. I recognised the legato sound. And I went, okay, there is no right or wrong way. You, you do what you want to hear. Mm-hmm. And that's what I took from that. So thank God yeah, for that. Yeah. You know, I, I really you know, I almost blew it there. So and it just goes to show you where, you know, young, young people, they, people say things to them. They might say things to them out of spite or meanness or whatever, and they take that stuff on board. You know, it's you've got to be careful what you say to young people. Absolutely, yeah. The, yeah. Um, that's a good lesson, though, on, on the positive side, though, that you've, you know, you found your own way and and I guess you were doubting a little bit from that story, but then, then you hear Holdsworth and you think, oh, okay, I can I can relate to this and, and I've actually, I'm on the right track here. Well, and, and luckily, Alan is so different, you know. I mean, it's he's not only a phenomenal musician, but he's different. He's so radically different to anyone else I've ever heard. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I mean, you know, he's not so different now because scumbags like me have grown up trying to copy <laughs> the guy, you know. <laughs> But um, doing a, a lousy job of it. But um, but you know, yeah. Uh, luckily, it didn't come from someone who could just play fast or something. You know, I went. I've never heard anyone that sounds like this guy before. And that's when I realised, like, 
you know, if you if you do your own thing, you may find your own sound. I mean, I knew that from straight away. I knew that right off the top that whenever I heard my favourite players, like if I heard Santana on the radio, I may as well have been looking at the guy, you know, or Blackmore or Page or Hendrix, anybody, you name it. Like their personalities were so embedded in every note they played. In in just their vibrato, you know, I could pick them a mile away. And I thought, that's the goal. You've got to have your sound. You've got to have your own thing. And I guess later on when, especially when Eddie came out and people were just going out of their way to copy him note for note, and it got worse with Vi and Satriani and, Mm -hmm. you know, that's always just bewildered me. But I I guess some people just, yeah, I guess maybe they don't hear anything inside. I don't know. Maybe they have to copy other people to the point where they just become a clone. And as Kenny Wayne Shepherd proved, you can have a career doing that. So (laughs) there you go. With... um just still on your legato, if I may, that when I hear you, it, it sounds super legato. But when I watch you play, I actually realise you are you are picking a lot of the notes, but it, you're using hybrid picking, and yeah. your right hand dynamics are so in control. Um, it still sounds very very smooth. It seems like you can control the attack of each note as much as you want or not. Yeah, I think I I think if you if you sat down and added it up, I'd probably pick about. 80% of everything I play. Because um, my, my flat pick actually plays a big role in it as well. But, uh-huh. um, but, but see, having said that, um, I'm a lousy flat picker. I mean, if I, if I had to pick everything, then I, I can't play anything. Yeah. My picking technique is thoroughly embedded in what I do. Mm-hmm. It's, got, you know, it's got nothing to do with – you could give me the most beginner – thing to alternate pick and i would suck at it i'll tell you that right off the bat so <laughs> whereas just let me do my thing and it's it's a cohesive thing yeah but, sure. uh, yeah take any element away even my legato technique sucks you know i mean i mean compared to well i reckon i reckon michael dolce's legato technique's infinitely better than mine i mean alan holdsworth's is the legato technique so mm-hmm. so yeah i guess mine's more of a hodgepodge of everything rolled into this thing yeah <laughs> I, I guess. I think the other players would say the same thing as well. I, think, I, I know Michael has said the same, um, speaking, speaking of your influence on him, and I'm sure Holdsworth got it from somewhere. Wasn't it? Um, wasn't he trying to sound more like a horn player in his phrasing than a, than a guitarist? Well, I guess that, well, that's the thing, isn't it? You know, Alan's influences have nothing to do with the guitar. I mean, he's, he's openly said he doesn't even really like the guitar for himself. He wanted to be a sax player. Yeah, right. But um, his father couldn't afford a saxophone, so he he got a guitar and uh, and uh, has spent the rest of his life trying to make it sound like a guitar. But you know, bear in mind too, uh, you know, Holtzworth plays. He's a, he's a good violinist. Um, he's a really he's played violin on a lot of recordings, and he's really? great. He's wow. he thinks he he thinks he sucks, but he thinks he sucks at guitar. I mean, you know. He, Alan thinks he's lousy at everything. I mean, I don't know, Alan. I'm just saying I've just from what I've read in from, interviews. Yeah, but, yeah, I've heard that, that kind of response. And yeah. he actually delved into pedal steel for a while. You can hear it on um, – on. Uh, it's all over the Road Games album. Not Road Games, uh, the Metal Fatigue album. Oh, okay, yeah. yeah. Yeah, there's a song called In the Mystery, and you can hear the opening chords of pedal steel. And it's hard to pick because he disguises it. But, uh, yeah, what a, what a dude, you know. He's an yeah. amazing, amazing man, yeah. So you're so you're in your teens digging through this. When did you um when did you get some demos together and and uh, send them off and end up in guitar player in the spotlight column? Um, I think that happened. I think I was about 
21, I think. Okay, yep. 20 or 21, maybe just before I turned 21, I'm not sure. But, um, yeah, I'd been seeing this column in Guitar Player called Spotlight that, that Mike Varney was doing, and he was featuring unknown players, and, and I was really enjoying reading it, you know, reading about all these people he was discovering, and, mm-hmm. I don't know, it just dawned on me one day that I'd never seen any Australians in there. So I thought, well, what the hell, you know? So we, we, my, my cover band, we'd done a demo of about three songs, in a little local studio, little four-track studio, and I, all I did was I just grabbed the solos from those songs and put them on a cassette, and it would have taken him less than a minute to listen to it. Okay, yep. And so I just sent him that, and uh, I thought, what the hell, you know, had my girlfriend take a picture of me standing in front of the house and uh, with my guitar, and, and I sent him that, and um, lo and behold, he put me in the book. I'm pretty sure I'm the first Aussie to ever be featured in that column. Okay. I, I'd never seen anyone in there from Australia before then. And uh, he said some lovely stuff about me. It was really nice, you know. It was, it was good. Yeah. I was and reading about, it the other day. He said you, he thought of you as a world-class player. And at 21, that's that's a pretty big rap from the guy who had, by that stage, you already discovered Yngwie Malmsteen and I think Paul Gilbert wasn't very far away. That's that's a pretty big yeah, rap. Yeah, yeah. I was really blown out, you know. I love the fact that he said I was difficult to categorize. I remember yeah, yeah. that. Uh, I remember that article off by heart because I bought 87 copies of it. So, you know. <laughs> As you would. Oh, oh, I was so blown out. I was so excited. I, but the, the, I guess the thing was, it wasn't long after I got that article that um, I bought a little Fostex 4-track. Okay. It was a little 4-track cassette player, which back then was pretty much like, like uh, that was about as consumer as you could get. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was probably better better quality four track cassette players, but let's face it, back then you were either in a studio or you've got a four track. Yeah, yeah. And but it was definitely a great thing for me. I, I had no capacity to overdub until then, so I, at least at least now I could actually do some demos. Yeah. And I decided, well, all right, I'll do up some instrumental tunes, uh, which I was doing anyway just for fun. It wasn't like it was a big business plan or anything. Sure. But I thought, well, now that I've got this rave in this magazine, it was the only in, independent sort of comment on my playing that I'd ever had. I didn't have any press articles or anything like that. We were just a pub band playing around Castlemaine, you know. No one was writing about us. And so I just did up a bunch of cassettes of some little tunes I wrote with me shredding like a nutcase all over them. And and I photocopied the uh, article and, uh, you know, hand-wrote letters and grabbed a whole bunch of names and addresses out of this magazine. It was called Sonics. Ah, yeah, uh, every year. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it was it was back in those days before the internet, and uh, every year they do it. They do a, a yearbook, and that actually had some names and addresses of management companies, record companies. So yeah, I remember that. Yeah, yeah, and I, I sent it all off, sent a whole bunch out. I, I guess I might have sent a dozen now. Okay. And luckily, luckly one of them went to the Wheatley organisation, and, and Glenn's company was just one of many management companies in there. And I thought, yeah. oh well, you get a get a tape, you know. And uh, Glenn was pretty much the only person that replied. And he just, I, the, I've still got the letter. It's awesome. And yeah. <laughs> uh, it just, yeah, it just said, dear Brett, I just got your tape. Please call me. And I thought, well, this can't be bad. You know, this can't be, you, you sort of like these ones. And uh, so I rang him up and he said he was, the John Farnham wanted to put a pub band together and just do some gigs in between LRB commitments. And, oh, okay, uh, yep. I said, no, if I wanted to be involved. And I was like, yeah, I want to be involved. Yeah. Because, see, it's really interesting. This this timeline is really strange. I'm a gas bag. I'm sorry. I'll totally blow your podcast out just talking. But, Mate, uh, this is great. This is great. Yeah. But my, my friends and I, you know, 
we come from a real petrol head community here in Castlemaine, so we, we got it into our heads we we're going to drive all the way to Bathurst to see the car race. And so we drove there, we bought tickets, drove up there, and if you bought a ticket to the race, you had a, you, that ticket allowed you to get into the very first gig they were going to have at this newly constructed amphitheatre. Oh, okay. And it was sort of in this sort of hole in the ground at the bottom of the mountain. And, uh, and well, actually, at the top of the mountain, actually. And, uh, but it was at the bottom of the racetrack. It was a good 80-foot drop from the, the fence line wow. to the stage. And LRB were the first band that were going to play there. Oh, so, okay. And I'd already, I was, I was always an LRB fan from day one, but I was a, really a fan with John in the band. I loved the Net album that had just come out, and mm-hmm. they were touring that. And I'd heard tracks off Uncovered, and I was just marvelling at this guy's voice. I thought, I wonder if this guy can sing like this live. Because, you know, being a heavy rock fan, I'd been to a lot of concerts, and the singers can never cut it live. They always dodge melodies and take a breath and, you know. Yep, sure. Or sometimes they can't sing at all, you know. They're they're purely purely products of the studio. It's disappointing. So anyway, we go to this uh, LRB gig. And after we get over the, the danger of almost being killed by stubbies being thrown at us from the lunatics up on the top of the mountain, you know, it was <laughs> quite dangerous. I'm just watching the... I mean, LRB are always a great band. There's no doubt about that. I've always thought they were tremendous. But John, my God, he just... He obliterated everything he ever did on the album. So I thought, he's wow. holding back in the studio. I'd, I'd never heard or seen anyone perform like it. Like, he was like a pit bull. He would not let go of the crowd until he won him over. It was so inspiring. And to hear the guy sing, I'd just never heard anything like it. I was like the greatest rock singer, or now I know the greatest singer I've ever heard, that's for sure. Mm-hmm. And then, yeah, it was it literally must have only been a few months later I got the response to my cassette wow. letter thing, and I'm in the guy's house, you know, so I'm auditioning for him. Fantastic. So, yeah, what a blast. This is amazing timing as well because he's just about to leave LRB and his next solo album, Whispering Jack, is goes on to be one of the biggest sellers in Australia and, a, and just a massive hit. How, how oh, was that timing? It's, it's the biggest seller in Australia, Matt. It's the biggest selling album of all time in this country. Oh, okay, and that's, okay. that's this side of... That's including rumours and, and thriller and everything wow. like that. Um, but, yeah, the thing was, I went down to, to meet up with John and Ross Fraser, his producer at John's house. I think he was living in Camberwell or something like that. So this was uh, late 85. Mm-hmm. And they were doing a they, – they explained to me that they were going to do an album the next year. And they were working on some demos. And they, they were working on a version of Let Me Out, which ended up on the album. And, and there was a space in that where they wanted a guitar solo. And they thought, oh, well, we'll play a solo on this and we'll see what you do. Yeah. And so I blew a couple of solos on it, and I got lucky and didn't hit any clams, and they liked what I did. And uh, and I remember um, Ross said, well, what would you play in the verses? And I said, oh, man, it's a bit hard to know. Like, there's, there's no vocal. You know, I don't know what to do. Uh-huh. And John said, oh, I'll chuck a vocal on for you. And he just grabbed a 57 and stood there in his living room and sang it like it was the last song he'd ever sing in his life, which, you know, now I know that's just how he sings. <laughs> But the thing that blew me away later on was I remember that the song was in the key of A, the demo was in the key of A. Okay. Whereas the, the album version's in the key of F sharp. So he sang a version of that song a minor third up from oh, where wow. the album was. Wow. And he was hitting stuff that just dogs would have trouble hearing. I mean, it was, it was just, I was so blown out. I don't think I played anything. I just was in shock. So, yeah, it was, uh, it was something else. What a, 
what a fantastic thing you know to happen to meet to meet a guy like John and to still be working with him to this day it's unbelievable it's fantastic um can we talk about let me out a little bit more that's that solo and particularly um from a live concert you did with the Farnham band I think it must have been around 87 I think it was in Brisbane from memory um no Melbourne Melbourne gig it was a Melbourne you you saw us in Melbourne uh, Brisbane did you or no no no. I, I saw the simulcast and I thought yeah, it was the Brisbane. Concert, I, think the, I think the concert was Melbourne. Okay. So. Now, this, this, is, uh, this is part of Australian guitar folklore now, and Michael Dolce and Chris Brooks, another one of, um, <laughs> one of my guests here, um, both bring it up. I remember it. Um, so we get to the Let Me Out solo, and, um, yeah, there's a bunch of us, and we're, pro- we're probably similar age, myself and these guys, and we all saw you on TV, gets to the Let Me Out solo and you, you unleash this thing and yeah, <laughs> if you listen to our other interviews, Michael and Chris they both speak about this at length and what, this, oh God. what and a both profound those, and moment. both those guys would eat me alive if they did the same solo oh, now, you know. I think they might say something else. interesting thing about the timing of things Uh so i guess you consider like that that i think that aired in 1986 i think it was the same year we released the album it all escalated so quickly it was either 86 or 87 say yeah um when we did that show and they they did the live broadcast now i guess for the timing there's no netflix there's no internet there's no playstations absolutely you've got tv and you've got network tv you yep. haven't even got cable, so you've got what maybe what eight channels, all up, all over the country. Yeah. So if you're doing a, a live simulcast, there's a really good chance that a lot of the population will watch it because there's nothing else on to watch. Absolutely. And I suppose you tie it in with the fact that at the time the album was going absolutely ballistic. So yeah, yep. a lot of people are going to watch it because most of them probably bought the album. Mm-hmm. And then you combine it with the fact that you're working with a music with a person as amazing as John Farnham who says, oh, it's a, it's a, I don't know, what is it, a 16-bar solo? Let's make it a 32-bar solo. Uh-huh. You know, I mean, who else would do that? I mean, John's just, that's just John. He loves, he has such respect for the musicians that he works with. He's always trying to give you more of his stage time. Mm-hmm. Like a lot of other artists of much lesser caliber than him as a musician would probably be finding, trying to find a way to push you back into the dark, you know? Uh-huh. 
Whereas he's like, no, come out here, get some sugar, take the spotlight, take he's, it. He seems to really dig it, yeah, absolutely. He loves it. And so it's just a, co- a combination of those unique events. You've got a pretty captive audience because they're not really doing anything else. I mean, most people are going to be glued to the TV. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a hot album anyway, so, I mean, a lot of people are going to be watching it. And you've got a, an amazing guy like John who says, let's double the length of the solo, shred your butt off, have fun, you know. And, <laughs> and I suppose at that time, you know, the... Uh, you know the sad, the sad thing is I, I was actually like I was actually a really melodic, tasteful player. You know I was capable of playing like really tasteful melodic solos, but yep. for some reason I got caught up in the whole speed demon thing. Maybe out of insecurity, I don't know. And so, but I guess you know when someone gives you a 32 bar solo like that, and they just want it to start at 10 and go to 11, then the last thing they need is a blues player. So you know, <laughs> I, guess, I guess I was. I was the right man for the job at the time, you know. Yeah, so yeah. cool. The um, I mean, there's some very melodic stuff that I want to talk about too. But that that solo, yeah, I was I was going to ask before, were you aware at the time, or maybe I guess even since, of the the profound effect that had on a bunch of Australian teenagers learning guitar, seeing something like that live on TV? Oh no, no. I mean, we, were, we were just playing. We were doing that solo every night. You know, we were touring constantly, and uh-huh. that was that was what I did. You know, so I didn't think much of it. It was just it was another gig, and yeah. and I was just more worried about this stupid camera they had strapped to my guitar. Was, <laughs> yeah, I want to talk about you know, that. <laughs> you know, back in the back in the days before nanotechnology, it was like yeah, you had a you had like a video camera and a big-ass cable coming off it. So, yeah, it was, it was compromising, to say the least. Yeah, I, I need to point out for our listeners, um, here's the thing, Brett, it's not as if the solo wasn't insane enough, but, there, yeah, there's this camera strapped to the lower <laughs> bout of your, I guess, near where the, the um, pickup um, yeah, I think it was sort of the, somewhere the, down the, at the end. I think it was the bottom cutaway of the strap, you know, yeah. like that bottom horn of the strap. So, and it's not yeah, like a GoPro whole... or something small. It's like a fairly chunky bit of gear yeah it's a big lump and thing and it's got a big cable coming up yeah so big okay. coaxial cable so the whole gig i was kind of with my left arm i was holding the neck up of the oh, guitar wow. i just wanted to drag it down to the to the floor so yeah yeah so but you know the, the show must go on so. <laughs> <laughs> well it certainly did man when it, when the when the editing cut to the the guitar cam that was just the best thing ever yeah, it's good fun. I, I suppose we weren't really seeing many shots like that back then. No so. way. I mean, it's, it's every, every kid and his iPhone's doing it on YouTube now, but back in uh, the mid-'80s, it was, it was absolutely spectacular. Yeah, if only we'd had a GoPro. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> hey, some of the other um, Farnham hits um, around that time, maybe a little bit later, um, things like Two Hearts and That's Freedom had very melodic solos and um, very memorable melodies. Um, and they were both slide solos, those two I've mentioned. When when was slide part of your playing? Um, uh, Little River Band, once again. I remember they, they released a song called Every Day of My Life. Now, it must have been, that's off the first album. Mm-hmm. And Rick Formosa plays the melody on a slide. And I remember, that was all I saw. He's got this steel thing on his finger. I love the sound of it. Because I think Rick was heavily influenced by Lyle George from Little Feet. Okay, yeah, yeah. And um, who's you know one of the most beautiful slide players that ever lived and so I went to the music shop and I bought a slide, bought a chrome slide and had a go at it. And, and of course, it was the most god-awful noise you've ever heard, you know, just <laughs> dreadful. And um, a mate of mine here in town, 
Glenn Quill, Quilly. Everyone just had E chucked on the ends of their names back then. So Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I was talking to Quilly about it, and he, he said uh, Quilly was older than me, so he had, he had a little bit more experience. I, I still couldn't ask him about chords and scales, unfortunately, because in that regard, he didn't know any more than me, but uh, he, he'd had more experience as a, as a musician okay. working. And he said, oh, no, he said, you've got to ch- tune your guitar to a chord, like open A or open E. He said, that's much better. And um, and so I ended up getting a, a cheap Les Paul Custom, and I tuned it to open. I think it was open A. Okay. Yep. And uh, and I'm, I experimented with open E as well. And he was right. Like at least then I could play it on stage. We could do a blues, and I could just sort of bash away on it. Yeah, sure. And develop some control, some intonation, some muting. And then after a while, I I thought I I had enough of a handle on it to go back to standard tuning. But of course, before that, I got I should regress. Um. I'm watching this show and uh, this evening rock show and uh, Joe Walsh is on mm-hmm. and he's doing a version of Rocky Mountain Way and he, uh, I notice he's playing slide and he's got it on his second finger, on the middle finger, yep. the finger. And and just like I said, young kids, they see stuff and I went, okay, so I suppose you put it on that finger, that's the way it goes. Uh-huh. And of course, like, you know, these days I realise that hardly anyone wears it on that finger. It's like, I think there's me, Bonnie Raitt, Bonnie Jeff Raitt, Beck, yep. Walsh and... And uh, that's about it, you know, that, hardly anybody else. That's pretty good company, though, if you can. <laughs> well, you know, it's it's just unusual. Like, yeah. you can put it on any finger you want. I mean, Dave Hole from Perth, he puts it on his first finger and plays over the top. Over the like top, yeah, that's right. Lap steel, so uh-huh. no rules, you know. Yeah. But um, when I went back to standard tuning, I really missed that major third interval you get between the, uh, the second and third string when you tune to open E. And I just looked at it and thought, I wonder if it would work. So I just tilted it, angled it, and you could you could actually get that interval. And it took a long time to get it to where I could do it with any degree of accuracy, but uh, but eventually it worked out, and it's mm-hmm. sort of become a cornerstone of what I do. And I never saw anyone else do it in all my travels. I've seen other people do it recently, yep. um, which is probably just coincidence. I doubt it's anything to do with me, but um, but I saw an old – on YouTube, I saw a clip of Jeff Beck back in the 70s, and he's doing it. So, you know, this goes Jeff Beck. What can I say? The bloody the governor. You know? <laughs> he probably did that and went, eh, fair enough, and then moved on to something else groundbreaking. So, yeah, unbelievable. But yeah, yeah, just it, it, those, all these things sort of worked out where I could go back to just playing in standard tuning, but still, thanks to just tilting it, I could get a little taste of open tuning in there, if you like. Okay. Yeah. Yep. And um, so you're not swapping out guitars when you when you want to play a slide tune. You're just you're keeping it in standard tune and the same guitar. Yeah, yeah. I just do it on the same guitar. Which, um, I mean, yeah. You give me a guitar in an open, uh, an open tuning, and I'm lost. You know, it's like sure. I don't know what I'm doing. So, how do you go with your action? Like, you know, a lot of people like to jack up the action for slide. How do you go? What what's your yeah, action a, like? I should say. It's a compromise. My action's not. It's not insanely low, to be honest. It's okay. not. Not as low as uh, I mean I've I've played well I played Sean Lane's guitar when I met him many years ago yeah and Sean's action was on the frets I mean it was okay. so low uh, it was un- beautiful to play I mean effortless to play okay, but, yeah. uh, but but you'd never be able to play slide on it so sure. um, and I was I was using eleven to fifty twos for many years and that was a good compromise because uh, the heavier strings allowed you to have a slightly lower action and support the weight of the slide. Okay, yeah, yeah. But um, but yeah, for the past few years, I've gone back to I went to ten to fifty two, just because you know my hands are getting older and a bit more creaky. You know what I mean? It's like I don't want to <laughs> sure. I don't want to temp temp fate. 
get any uh, troubles or anything like that. So, so sure. yeah, it's just it's a bit of a compromise, but but it's not bad, you know. I mean, look, if I was recording, I'd probably chuck heavier strings on and bump the action up just to get a better tone. Mm-hmm. But uh, the, the compromise live, you can just whip out the slide and play it. Then it's kind of cool. You don't carry two guitars around yeah, with nice, you. Nice, nice. What, uh, what were you playing? What guitars were you playing around that, that time? So during your first stint with John? Strat, always. I, 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 uh, it had to be a Strat because of Richie Blackmore, unfortunately. And, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and, you know, after all these years, I think, to be honest, I think I, was, I should have been a Gibson man. I think uh, Gibsons are much, particularly SGs. I, I bought an SG about three years ago, and, and wow, you know, I, should have, I think I should have been playing an SG, but I... Because of Richie, it had to be a strat, had to be a whammy bar. So, okay. uh, so yeah, that was my poor mother. I just sort of browbeat her into buying a Fender strat for me all those years ago. Big investment back then. Sure. And um, but I promised her I'd never give it up, and I never did. And the guitar's still hanging on the walls. So there you go. That's fantastic. What what year is that? I think it's like an early, uh, like a mid seventies type of thing, okay. like seventy three, seventy four, that sort of deal. Yeah, big headstock. Yeah. Yeah, your classic headstock. Although the neck, there's a different neck on it now. But um, okay. but uh, yeah, it was your, your classic headstock strat. Yeah. And what about Sun, red sunburst? You know, like I said, I was just trying to get as close to Richie's look as I could. Yeah, cool. What about amps and pedals? Um, well, uh, with Richie, it had to be a Marshall, didn't it? You know, so so I just waited until I started. I struggled through with. Um, a Jade Clubman, which was an Australian-built amplifier, I think. Okay, yep. Uh, dreadful piece of work. Really horrible, <laughs> nasty piece of work. But it was loud, and um, I, I eventually got a fuzz wire pedal, and that at least made it sound a bit more rock, you know, the fuzz. Yep. And, um, but then I just, I just decided I've got to go for this Marshall. And there was a store down in Frankston named Guitar Village, and I got a, a, uh, the most beautiful old... Like it was a 1970, that was the year it was made. I looked wow. inside it on a piece of paper. A 1970 super, 100 watt super lead. Oh, brilliant. And um, that amp is now owned by David Carr, who's a fantastic guitar player, producer in Melbourne. And David ended up with it. I think he got it secondhand from, I sold it while I was in the States and I was just broke and needed cash. And, and the amp had actually sort of deteriorated was probably just needed in need of a service and new tubes or something. I don't sure. know, but uh, but I sold it like an idiot. And uh, yeah, God bless David. I was doing a session about a year and a half ago, and as it turned out, he was in the studio the night before, and with the amp, and he left it there for me to play through the next day. So I got to see it again. But nice. uh, he has absolutely no intentions whatsoever of selling it back to me. <laughs> At least you had a you had a will on there. <laughs> And I don't blame him, so yeah, I wouldn't sell it either. So, and he loves it, so it's just really nice to know it's gone to a good home. But, yeah, cool. Uh, yeah, that amp, that amp was a great amp. Wow. Were you using any pedals in front of it? 
Yeah, I ended up. Uh, I ended up. I also I got the matching uh, quad box for it, which was a slant front grey covered quad box, oh, yeah. Marshall box. Yeah, cool. And I ended up getting a uh, Dodd preamp, and it was the one with. It just had the knob. It didn't even have an on-off switch. It was okay. Just the, and it was a clean boost. It was like if you plugged it into a clean amp and turned it up, it just made that louder. So it wasn't a distortion pedal as such, but it just hit the front of the amp with more more input. So it was almost like having a supercharged humbucker in a strap. Wow, cool. And and the other weird thing was, um, a friend of mine gave me this weird thing. It was a line impedance booster. So it was like a cigar-shaped thing that had a, a male jack on one end and a female jack on the other. And guys used to use them on mic cables that had uh, quarter-inch jacks on them to boost input oh, okay. impedance if they used long cables. Yeah. I stuck it in the front of that Marshall, and it just did everything. It just totally took the bottom end and just compressed it. Not compressed it, but focused it. Okay. Like yep. before, if I didn't put that in, the bottom end was quite woolly and undefined. And as soon as I shoved that thing in with the Dodd preamp, wow, it was just amazing. In fact, I had it built into the input of the amp because I kept walking past it and breaking it all the time. Okay. So poke, <laughs> poke out of the front of the amp. I'm not sure yeah. if, if Dave even knows it's there or whether he had it taken out i'm not sure he oh, may have wow. got, got rid of it but uh that's cool but here's the thing like i mean i was listening to some old cassettes of our cover band from god knows how many years ago just to listen to the sound and the, the playing's god awful of course but but i after i got that combination i never paid one moment of thought to guitar sound after that all I thought about was playing because the sound was done. I was finished. I was okay. done. If I could, wow. if I could plug into an amp now and get that tone again, I'd be as happy. It just—it sounds like the best Les Paul plugged into a Marshall, and it's a Strat. You'd never guess it's a Strat. So yeah, just I just got lucky and got a great amp and the right stuff to plug into it, and off I went. Cool. And was that your rig for the um, for Whispering Jack, for that album? Yeah, yeah. Although we sort of, you know, we didn't really capitalise on the true sound of the amp for that album, we were sort of, it was, it was a strange sort of album. Like, I, I was very inexperienced. That was the first time I'd ever been in a proper studio. Sure. So I'd never played a funk tune or anything like that in my life ever, you know. Uh -huh. So I was very limited in what I could do. But, you know, much thanks to John and Ross, they really sort of coached me through it and encouraged me. Yeah. Um, but uh, David Hirschfelder had already put, 117 million keyboard parts on everything so <laughs> so and they're all brilliant Hershey's yeah, a genius yeah you know I mean that's I'm just I'm just saying he's so such an amazing musician I mean it almost didn't need guitar on it but uh <clears throat> but um so I was sort of struggling to find something to do but uh but uh yeah that we did use that amp anyway yeah cool I've I've read um interviews with you where you're saying around this stage for your career, you're still not 100% sure um, what scales you're using. You've developed your ear, but um, yeah, you're not even sure what the scales you're using. You're just still using your ear to navigate around the place. Is that true? Yeah, I didn't know what they were called. I didn't know the names of the modes, but I could play modally. I mean, yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I could definitely... I mean, I, I certainly knew my way around Mixolydian and Dorian, so the, yeah. the sort of more blues-based scales were great. Yeah, sure. A uh, little bit of Lydian, a little bit of uh, Phrygian, you know, I could sort of dabble in a little bit of harmonic minor and all that sort of stuff. But I, I just I, I just identified the sounds by intervals, so I didn't... Uh, my interval recognition was really good. Mm -hmm. Like, uh, you know, you could hit 
a, a, a tonic and hit any note against it, and, and within a split second, I could tell you exactly what interval it was. Okay, yeah. But um, so well, well, fair enough because that's how I survived. You know, yeah, that's how yeah. I managed to even be a musician was just purely by ear. But but um, yeah, it wasn't until I went to America and met T.J. Helmrich that because um, T.J. had studied. Yep. We'd be jamming, and I just instinctively start playing E Mixolydian, I guess, and. He remarked on it one day and said, man, he said, you really like playing Mixolydian a lot. And I said, I do. <laughs> and he said, don't you know what that is? And I said, no, what is it? He said, it sounds like a disease that rabbits get, you know, <laughs> and um, myxomatosis. And, uh, and uh, so he, you know, he would explain the scales to me. And I said, well, I know the scales. I just didn't know the names, and, and which, of course, I had to learn them once I started teaching. But uh, and then he showed me other scales. He showed me the melodic minor scale and things like that. So, yeah, it was fascinating. I had no idea. Wow. I was desperate to learn, but just no one to teach me, you know? Yeah, yeah. And then the, and then the silly thing was I ended up becoming a working professional, and, you know, and and uh, and I was so – like when I, when I first worked with John, when I first worked with him, Sam C was playing guitar in the band. I wasn't the only guitar player. Oh, okay, yep. And I was just in awe of the fact that Sam was there, and I was I was desperate to ask him questions, mm -hmm. but I was just, I was just too shy and too embarrassed. I thought, you know, if I go up to Sam and say, "Well, hey Sam, can you show me some chords?" I was afraid he probably would have said, "Sure, what do you want to know?" You know, he's a lo lovely guy, but I was afraid he'd look at me and say, "Well, if you don't know these chords, what are you doing in this band then?" And I I was so worried about that that I was afraid to ask anybody anything. Uh, so yeah, it's a it's a shame, man. I really, I'm not regretting everything I got. That's for sure. I got a dream run out of music. That's for sure. Yeah, to be sure. in John's band, but uh, but just as a musician, I I really wanted to learn. I wanted to learn more. Still do. You know, I'm still trying to learn. All right, we will be bringing part two of the conversation with Brett Garsed to you very shortly, but I do want to thank our sponsors, Fretboard Biology, for bringing this episode. Now, Brett's path actually crossed with Joe Elliott's of Fretboard Biology. They've been friends for many, many years, and this is what Brett had to say about the course when he checked it out. And I quote, I can say with absolute confidence that Fretboard Biology is one of the premier music instruction sites in the world. I personally know most of the musicians involved and they are of the highest caliber possible, not only as players but also as teachers. If you're looking for a thorough learning experience that will allow you to reach your highest potential, this is the place for you." Unquote. So if Brett is behind it, I think there's something good going on there. Check out in our show notes, there is a link which will get you to a discount. Also, you can check out the course for no cost for seven days. All right, let's jump back into the conversation with Brett Garson. I started this section asking him about his move to America. Well, I was always fascinated with America. Uh, my brother, my brother had a picture on the wall of uh, Easy Rider. You know, Dennis Hopper and Peter Fonda riding their choppers across uh, the Golden Gate Bridge. <laughs> yeah, cool. And I just used to stare at it as a, this is before I even played guitar, and, and I just look at it and the stars and stripes on the, that tank of that motorbike. And I just went, man, these guys look cool. I think America's cool. And, uh, and all, the, all these great musicians seem to be living in America. And, um, and so I sort of had this fascination with it as a place. And um, I guess it was, a, it was a time when John was going to take quite a bit of time off because he'd been working, we'd been touring really hard. 
and just the opportunity came up to go over and audition for uh, uh, the Nelson guys. Yeah. And I was at a bit of a loss. I'd broken up with a long-term relationship with a girlfriend and I was sort of bummed about that. And I tried to sort of settle myself in Melbourne to get some work and that wasn't working out. And, and uh, I thought, yeah, what the hell? You know, I was in a bit of a bad place and I thought, what the hell? Chuck me on the plane. Let's see what happens. And um, I went over there and we, we all really hit it off and they liked what I did. And then, of course, I had to come home and make a really painful decision. That was and, – and look, you know, John, oh, this is how stupid and naive I am and was and always will be, I guess. But I was that silly. I was sitting in the studio with John and I actually asked him if I should do it. Asked, asked John if I should leave his band and uh -huh. go to America. And – you know, to, to John's eternal credit, he gave me the closest thing to fatherly advice I've ever had. And uh, not to insinuate John's old enough to be my father, but sure. having never really had one, you know, it was, I had no one else to ask. Yeah, wow. And, he, and he, with, with all honesty, just total honesty, he said, mate, he said, he said, look, he said, all you can do is either do it or not do it and look back on it years from now and go, well, it was the right decision or the wrong decision. And he said it with no malice, no nothing, just pure advice. And I knew it was coming from someone who'd had to make the same decisions. I know he's had to do a lot of hard things in his own career. Sure, yeah. And, and I, you know, I, in, in all honesty, I look back on it now and I think, I don't know, if I'd had the, the, the decision to, to make again, I would not have done it. I would have stayed with John. And, mm -hmm. uh, and, uh, but at the same time, I look back on it and I go, well, I don't know, I wouldn't be the person I am now and all the rest of it. And it was a great experience. You know, I've got friends over there that will be friends until the day I die, you know what I mean? It's like a big chunk of my life was there. I was in America for 13 years, so. Yeah, wow. So, uh, so yeah, it was a, but it was, I guess, I guess the thing was it was such an incredible opportunity to be handed to me as this just nobody Australian that I thought, what if I don't take it, you know? Sure. Like, would, I be, would I be crazy not to do it? I don't know. So I took it, mm -hmm. rolled the dice and went for it. Yeah, one of the one of the friendships you struck up um, was with TJ Helmrich, who who you've already mentioned. Tell me about working with him. Well, yeah, TJ was actually working. We recorded the Nelson album at Cherokee Studios in Los Angeles, beautiful old studio with enormous amount of history to it. And TJ was working there as just pretty. He eventually became a technician there, fixing tape machines and things. But when he was working there, when I was there, he was just literally just cleaning ashtrays and doing just sort of general work around the place. Yeah, wow. And um, there's a, another bit of a story here. They had a tune on there called Everywhere I Go, and they wanted to give me a pretty big outro solo. And I thought, great, all right. So they rolled tape, and I just blew a take. And, uh, and I remember being really, really happy with the take because up until this point, you know, there were certain solos where I had to stick either exactly to what had been done on the demos, so there was no real opportunity to express myself. Mm-hmm. Or there were small moments where I could put my own identity in there, but not not in a big way. And in this outro solo, I felt like I really got a major part of my personality on that tape, you know. And uh, Mark Tanner, the producer, I went in the next day, and Mark was a bit pissed off because I was coming back from America to do another tour with John, and they felt he felt like they'd had to juggle their recording schedule around to suit me, and I think he was a bit sort of bitter and twisted about it. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I went in the next day and uh, he started playing. He just 
press play and started playing the solo and uh i'm listening to it going yeah sounds good yeah i'm enjoying it yeah it sounds good yeah, that's me all right yeah and then and then by the stage it got to sort of halfway through and it had gone on a bit you know that would have faded out by then and it was sort of getting a bit naff by this stage and i thought ah yeah it's okay but the ideas aren't as good and he stopped it at that point and said everything you have heard up to this point is being cut out of this solo how do you like them apples wow and yeah exactly you know what now what i should have done was looked at him and said mark if you cut that out i'm going to grab my return ticket and fly home and you can erase everything i've done up to this point how do you like them apples you know but of course you know being the insecure young fellow in a strange land i said okay and that was it so but the funny thing is tj helmrich was in there cleaning up the night before when they were doing rough mixes of the of the album to just take home and listen to for their own edification mm-hmm. and he heard this solo and he's he, he said he said told me he said i thought you were doing the two hand tapping thing he said i thought my god this guy's doing what i'm doing and um unbeknownst to Tanner and the uh, engineer, after they'd left, TJ chucked the 24 tracks up and did his own mix of it <laughs> and, and took it all home. And I've actually got a copy of it now, thanks oh, to him, unedited. That's great. And, um, and uh, yeah, and he just was really keen to meet me and, uh, and have a chat. And we just hit it off and became great friends. And, of course, as soon as he played for me, I just went, look at this. Some, he's done it. He's figured it out. Someone's actually figured this two-hand thing out as a style and not just an occasional trick you use. So, yeah, I was just astonished. And uh, we're, we're, to this day, we're just old mates. That's great. He's got that really interesting eight-finger style, hasn't he? he kind of, when he solos, he, he lifts the guitar up almost vertically and, and uh, all four fingers on both hands. Kind of plays it like a, like a guy would play a Chapman stick. You know, yeah, you've seen yeah, right. Uh, yeah, the more vertical, the better it's for him. So almost playing it like he'd be playing an upright bass or a cello or something. And uh, and and like I said, he, I mean, TJ started off as a speed picker. You know, he wanted to be Aldo Miola and okay, yeah, all that Michael Schenker and Ingvay and all the rest of it. And I think he just realised what a, you know, there was no identity in it. Like everybody was doing it, and all you could do was be faster than the next guy. So mm-hmm. I think he wanted to establish his own sound and he started experimenting with this two-hand thing and he just decided to commit to it as a style and that's what blew me away was i thought man he this is his style of playing you give him a guitar that's how he plays it and of course he could play it many other ways but his identity was in this this style and he was so damn good at it. he's literally literally 20 years ahead of his time i think guys are only just now starting to catch up to where he was in 1989 so Mm. So yeah, it was it was phenomenal. Yeah, wow. And he's um he's a really highly respected engineer as well these days, doing some really cool well, stuff. Well, I mean, you know, you're dealing with one of the most talented people on the planet. I mean, this, mm-hmm. you should hear the guy sing. You know, amazing singer and an an incredible recording engineer, all self-taught. Yeah. And wow. uh, and and a hell of a songwriter. I mean, you know, like he's he's the whole ball of wax. The old TJ. He's an amazing guy. So. Uh, so yeah, what a what a what a thrill to have him as part of my life. You know, That's he's great. had a major impact on me as a musician. That's so. cool. You guys ended up recording a couple of albums together, I believe. Yeah, it was uh, Mark Varney, Mike's brother. Oh, okay. And, uh, Mike and Mark. I mean, could could their parents have made it any more confusing? <laughs> than that? 
Bob and Jim, you know, try that maybe. But anyway, um, yeah, so Mike had shrapnel records and yeah. Mark wanted to go fusion direction. So he started Legato Records. Okay. Yeah. And his first signing was Frank Gambali. And, um, and uh, then he contacted me because he wanted me to do a solo album for him. I think this was before it even gone to America. This might okay. have even been on the strength of the guitar player article. Oh, okay. And we just started crunching numbers and we just couldn't do it. You know, there was, there was no way I could get it done cheap enough for him. Right. And um, I think he was used to fusion bands going in and knocking it out in a couple of hours and then you mix it, master it, and off it's, it's done in for five grand. And, uh, okay. I didn't want to work that way. And, um, but he asked me to play on an album called Centrifugal, Centrifugal Funk with Sean Lane and Frank Gambale, and, uh, which was a hell of a thrill. That's where I got to meet Frank and... and uh, and, and eventually got to meet Sean, which was just beautiful. But, yeah, uh, wow. But um, then after talking to TJ, well, I sent TJ's uh, demo cassette to Mark, and I said, well, you should hear this guy too. You know, he's my friend now. And, um, <clears throat> of course, he wanted TJ to do an album as well, and his budgets were around 5000 bucks. And we're both sitting there saying, we, we, there's no way we can do an album for 5000 bucks. How do you do an album for 5000 bucks? you know? And TJ said, well, you know, I don't know whether he suggested it or I did, but we just decided let's combine forces and do one album for 10000 bucks. And because TJ was working at Cherokee, we got to record there on downtime, so we'd creep in in the middle of the night and record, and the, the bosses were fine with that. The Robs who owned the studio, they were great. They just said, yeah, you can come in and use the gear and go ahead, you know. And uh, Yeah, so we eventually got the album done. It's quid pro quo. Yeah, and it was all analog tracked on vintage gear. It was beautiful, so... What a thrill. ended up hooking up with GIT as well. How did that come about? Well, that was thanks to TJ. He, he made me known to uh, Keith Wyatt, who was the head of the Guitar Institute at that time. Okay. Lovely guy. Great player. Great guy. Yeah. And Keith got me up to do a uh, just a sort of a class in the big room in front of the students, and uh, and which sort of didn't start well because uh, Nelson weren't exactly the most respected band in the world back then, you know, and, uh, <laughs> and he... Yeah, he mentioned that I played for Nelson and no one knew who I was at all yeah. so and uh, so yeah there was much laughing and guffawing around the room and that was cool I totally took that on the took it on the chin on the chin as I do to this day but uh, um, after I played they they didn't laugh so much they liked it you know they because uh, it was different you know it was a bit different to no one really played much legato stuff back then mm-hmm. and unbeknownst to me 
Um, well, they did. The, the, the shredder guys were doing legato, but all they did was just sort of not pick anything and do the same three-note per string patterns yeah, as they picked. Yeah, okay. Yep. Weren't, they weren't being terribly creative. The most creative guy out there, I thought, was Reb Beach from Winger, who was doing some beautiful stuff. Okay. Um, yeah, he was, he was doing some amazing stuff. I was blown out when I got to the States and saw them, and I went, you know, Rod Morgenstone, Mor- Morgenstein from... Uh, the Dregs, the Dregs was in that yeah, band. yeah. I was like, does every band like this? You know, they were they were incredible. I thought, and uh, and um, and the hybrid picking thing too. They were really confused with that. So okay, cool. So, I mean, this, this is just what I did. I didn't take any notice of it. And then people were asking me questions about it, and I'm like, I don't know. You know, like I just play. It's like up to that point, I'd never done really done an interview. I had never done a guitar seminar. I had no idea how to talk to people or. Uh-huh. Anything. I was a pretty shy sort of a guy anyway. So the only reason I'm such a gas bag now is that I've done so many guitar clinics I know how to talk. So, <laughs> so uh, yeah, so um, that's – and then Keith very kindly said, we should get you up to do some open counsellings. And, and then eventually I uh, – eventually someone went away on a, a gig and they asked me to sub their students for them. So I sort of ended up being a bit of a teacher there. Okay, cool. Very cool. With – um. With open counselling, is that like a? Can you explain that? I've heard that term. Is that like an open class or a, like a group class or something? Yeah, you just you just sit in a room, a fairly small sort of a room, and it's usually got about half a dozen amps in it. Yep. And whoever wants to come in and play can, and you just sit there for however many hours they give you. Like it could be an hour or two or three or four, and mm-hmm. you know, like a, one of the main teachers there, like Scott Henderson. Scott will sit in that room for quite a long time, you know. That's where he teaches from. He doesn't. I don't think Scott does classes or anything like that. He's okay. there as an open open counselor. Yeah, right. And uh, and it was great fun. Yeah, I'd have people just walk in, you know, and uh, and you have no idea. It could be a, a, a total beginner, or it could be a world class player. I mean, Rafael Morea. I don't know if you know Rafael. He uh, he's a phenomenal guitarist. He he ended up playing with touring with Pink and. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, He's Brazilian, uh, and uh, uh, not Shakira. Who's the other other one? Christina Aguilera. Okay, yep. And, uh, I ended up actually doing a tour of Australia with Paul Stanley, and and it was the entire band from the rock star shows that they did. Okay. And Raphael was in the band, so yeah, he was. I remember Raphael meeting him when he was a student, coming in with dreads from dreadlocks from uh, Brazil, and he was so damn good. I remember just looking at him going, dude, why are you even here? You know, <laughs> there's no one here to teach you anything. You're just here to get phone numbers and make connections. So, wow. so yeah, you, you had no idea. Richard Hallebeek, who's a friend of mine, uh, he's a phenomenal fusion player from uh, Holland. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, Richard just walked in and let's jam. And I'm like, oh my God, you know, I've got myself in deep water here. You know, so it was, uh, yeah, I, I didn't really think on my feet with some of those guys walking in. They were incredible. Wow. So you've gone from this position in Australia when you're playing with, you know, the biggest pop rock guy in the country, but now you're, you're, you're deep in this really intensive guitar universe. Did you enjoy the change of scenery in that sense? Yeah, I love the, I mean, I love the challenge of it because it just always is a challenge. And mm-hmm. um, I must admit, though, it's sort of, it sort of wore me down a bit because I'm not trained in jazz or or even fusion, really. I mean, you know, it's not like I'm not an experienced fusion player where I can just walk into a room and someone will throw a chart in front of me and I'll go, oh, look, it's just the same as uh, all the things you are, only in every different key. And, you know, I have no reference point for that stuff. My my background 
and what's sort of in my heart and soul is rock and pop. Mm-hmm. But the funny thing is, with the way I phrase when I play the instrument and some of the notes I choose, I sound, for all intents and purposes, like a fusion player. And uh, I guess my whole thing was I just want to take some of this rock, some of this fusion stuff and shove it in rock and maybe make something different. Yep. And I don't know if I've done that. I don't know if I actually achieved that. But that was my intention. My intention was to bring some of this fusion stuff to rock and pop and see what happened. And uh, uh, But then, of course, when you work with the hardcore guys, I mean, I've worked with some of the best fusion players in the world. And, and then you really find out what your limitations are, you know. And you, you also find out where where musicianship can go. I mean, I usually just sat back in awe at how good these guys are. And yeah, I mean, yeah. some some of those guys, um, you, you've worked with Derek Sheridian, for example. Tell me about that. Yeah, well, that came through through getting to know Virgil, Virgil Donati. Yeah. Um, uh, I only ever met Virgil in Australia when he was sharing a place with Phil Buckle from Southern Suns because Phil's an old friend of mine from way back Okay. Before John, you know. Yeah. Yeah, Phil's been a, a huge help to me all through my musical career. And, and man, if I'd lived up the road from Phil, I'd be a much better guitar player now. I would have been bugging him every day about scales and chords, for uh-huh. sure. Uh, <laughs> um, but uh, Virgil eventually went to the States and ended up uh, getting a room at MI to rehearse. Okay. And as a result of it, TJ and I got to know him. And uh, we asked him to play on some tracks for us. And so then we just start doing things together and, you know, and do the odd gig or whatever. And and uh, when Derek was going to do the Planet X album after he'd left Dream Theater, yeah. um, I don't know if he even really had a guitar player in mind. I, th- I thought they were going to have TJ do it. And then uh, it ended up that uh, Virgil said, I'll oh, get Brett to do it, you know, and for whatever reason. I have no idea for what reason. And, um, yeah, so I had to learn – had to play all the tunes on a seven string, so I borrowed a seven string off a friend and cool. tried to wrap my head around that. Uh-huh. And because they wanted it low and heavy, you know, yeah. heavy record and uh, heavy prog. And um, and talk about challenging—that's the hardest stuff I've ever played, you know, like as far as chops goes. So, so yeah, really deadly. Because like I said, I'm not a picker, you know. Tony McAlpine ate it up, uh, you know, because he's a fantastic alternate picker. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, it was really hard for me. So. <clears throat> but um, but I loved it. I loved doing it. Great fun. You know, it was brilliant. Can I ask you, I've got some other of those fusion guys to ask, but you mentioned Phil Buckle. Can I ask a Phil Buckle question? Absolutely. Yeah. One of my favourite Farnham solo moments is in the song New Day, which I think is off, is that off Chain Reaction, I think? Yeah. Yeah, that's Phil that plays the jazz solo. Yeah. Ah, that was my question. Did Phil do the jazz solo and then you do your, your fusion-y solo afterwards? And I do the I do the... The, the rock shred solo yeah man i love that and I, I think i'd read somewhere but i couldn't remember so that was something i wanted to ask you awesome well that, i think that's a great example of what you say when you're trying to you know insert some of that kind of fusion rock influence into into the pop world
Well, to be honest, I mean, Phil was way ahead of the curve with all that stuff. I mean, you know, he was he was the guy that the minute John McLaughlin came on the scene, he, within a week he's all over it, you know. Wow. I mean, Phil's so damn good. Uh, guitar playing is almost like an afterthought to him, I think. He's a songwriter. Yeah, sure. Who just also happens to be one of the greatest guitar players that's ever lived, you mm-hmm. know. And like when Yngwie happened, within a week he had it all down. Really? Like, wow. I, I can do Yngwie, you know. He's... He, I asked him about it once, and he said, well, I don't know. I just look at it like I've got two hands and a brain. Like, <laughs> can, I, can I do what these guys do? And he had the right hands, too. Like, he's got enormous hands. He can stretch from one end of the thing to the other, you uh-huh. know. It's like Phil's just built to play the guitar. So, yeah. But luckily, he's also built to write brilliant songs, and that's what he does. You know, he, he brings all that knowledge. to. That's why there's so much beautiful harmony in the songs that he writes. Like, okay, yeah. It's because of his... Like, look at Burn For You, like the voicing. Yeah, beautiful. I mean, and I still don't get it. It's not right. Like, I mean, I've sort of done a hash job of learning Phil's version, but uh, but um, I just know my version of it now. But, uh, but yeah, just those beautiful chords. I mean, that's, that's Phil from years of studying jazz and God knows what else, and he brings it to the pop world. Yeah, fantastic. Hey, I think it's really funny um, that you had to go to the east coast of the States to meet Frank Gambali, who's another Australian. Yeah, isn't that wild? Yeah, I go all the way to LA and meet Frank. Yeah. That's cool. Um, I've heard you say you're a big fan of his sweep technique. Not that you use it, but that that you just you loved it when when that came out. Well, he, that's that's Phil again. You know, uh, I went down to Soundworks down in Ringwood. Uh, they were they were the guys that Paul Gale at Soundworks was always the guy that repaired my gear. And, okay. uh, so I drive all the way to Ringwood, and Phil was working there for a time. And I remember they used to play. They used to play instructional videos in the store just to pass the time and all mm-hmm. that sort of stuff. And they had a Vinnie Moore instructional video on. And uh, I think it was that classic first one that Vinnie Moore did. Uh-huh, yep. And in, in the middle of one of his amazing solos, he does a sweep arpeggio. And I went, my God, what was that? And Phil said, oh, <laughs> Phil said, oh that, that's a sweep arpeggio. And I said, geez, I've never seen anything like that before. And I hadn't. I had no idea you could even do such a thing. And... And Phil said, well, maybe you should take this home and have a look at it. And he gave me Frank's first video. Oh, so awesome. I, <laughs> I took that home and just went, you've got to be kidding me. What, you know, what planet's this guy from? And I found out he's from planet Canberra, you know. So, yeah, yeah. Um, but the, which was amazing when I met Frank, I asked him about that. I was like, how'd you end up here and in Chicks Man and the whole thing? And he, he said, well, I was just in Canberra and I thought, well, I either go to Sydney and study at the con or I could go to GIT. And he chose GIT and the rest is history. Wow. So. Uh, but, but the thing about Frank's technique, I, I didn't adopt the sweep picking, uh, but it was the way he observed the fingerboard, the way the, the sweep picking allowed him to play scale lines across strings, which just blew me away. And when I laid that stuff on the guitar, I found out I could do it with my fingers. And it was like, it was literally like someone tapped me on the head with a magic wand and said, you can now do this. And overnight, my whole style just changed because I had the chops. All I had to do was come up with the ideas. And awesome. I, think to, I think to my credit, I didn't actually learn anything off of Frank's video. I didn't, because not, not out of, that I didn't want to. I didn't want to copy Frank. You sure. know? And uh, so I, I started coming up with all these licks and 90% of them ended up on some trivial funk. Like, like I was only shedding them for a few months and I just walked into the studio and had all this stuff I could do. Yeah, cool. And thank God, because that's when all the two-hand tapping went out the window, because you know, I met TJ, and I thought, yeah, I'm going to look great standing there poking around with one finger, and this guy's standing next to me all over. 
his octadigital techniques. So I thought, yeah, maybe maybe give the two-hand tapping a rest. And So I didn't really do any more of that. I just sort of let it go uh-huh. and uh, and got into this hybrid pick thing. That was sort of where I was going. Yeah, right. Cool. So when when did you decide to pull up stumps you know, from your, your trip in the States? Well, it's not really a trip. It was a whole, a whole lifetime, really. Yeah, I, I lived back there. Way too late, but uh, it was eventually 2003 was when uh, I moved back. So Okay, yep. So, yeah, it was just, there was, you know, we'd finished doing the last time tour with John. Yep. And so, obviously, I'd spent a year in Australia. Okay. And just, you know, I just realised I'm an Australian. All my family are here. Like, like you know, Australia's a beautiful country, mm-hmm. you know. Live in Australia. <laughs> like, you know, live in Australia and visit America. How's that sound? You know, and, and yeah, it was the way to go. Yeah, sure. Cool. And you've been playing with John again ever since that tour. Yeah, yeah. Thank God he was kind enough to invite me back to play with him after leaving. So that's awesome. Have, would have had every right to tell me to bugger off and never show my face again. But, <laughs> so yeah, that's definitely it's an honour to be on stage with John in any capacity it always has been and it's a real privilege to 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 be allowed back in the fold you know what i mean it's yeah, like it's awesome. more than more than enough fantastic guitar players that would have loved that gig and yeah it's a real privilege to that he would ask me to come back and play with him again that's so. great the thing with with John Farnham's band i've noticed over the years that the people who have worked with him um, there there's some people who've been there for a really long time even even Stuart Fraser, who I think of as the new guy in John's band, he's been there 20 for years. A, yeah, yeah, a long, long time. Yeah, 20 years. And, uh, and uh, Craig Newman, like... Uh, yeah, the bass player. Like I, I, well, I met Stuart and Craig in 1994. That's, okay. Oh, no, hang on. I met uh, Stuart in 1994. Craig joined for the last time tour. Okay. So I would have met Craig in 2002. Okay, yep. But um, I, don't think, I don't think I'd met Craig prior to then. I never got around the Melbourne scene very much, so I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have met him. But, uh, but yeah, so I met Stuart in 1994. Yep. And, uh, and just, yeah, immediately became a fan. I mean, I was a fan of Stuart's anyway. I, I actually remember reading about Stuart because he was playing in a band called Feather. Okay. And I remember reading about him in Duke magazine when I was fourteen, wow. and he was six, he was sixteen. Okay. And I they had a they had a, a single called Girl Trouble, and I remember the the video was on Countdown, and he played this great solo, and and I remember just thinking, oh my god, this guy's two years older than me and light years better than me. I thought I got to really get busy and get better. <laughs> It's just, I guess, luckily, not every sixteen-year-old sounded like Stuart Fraser back then. So, yeah, wow. So, uh, but yeah, yeah. So I just, yeah. So I was already, and then I was a huge Noiseworks fan too. So I yeah, mean, sure. Yeah, it was just such a thrill to get to know him and 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 to be to be playing with him all these years. What a what a learning experience. Wow, fantastic. Yep, greatest groove in the universe, I think. Yeah. So, cool. Yeah, I, I would pretty much say that uncategorically. Yeah. yeah. Oh, I love his playing. He's very melodic as well. Like you listen to those noise work solos, and they're just these beautiful little compositions in the middle of the tunes. Well, it's the parts. It's what he plays on the songs. I mean, when we do John's gigs, he pretty much plays it different every night, and uh, and yet it's gold. It's all gold. You know, you just want to record all of it, keep it. So, so yeah, that's a. You know, if the, if the music industry was still as robust as it was, say, twenty years ago, and there were sessions around, I mean. 
Stewart would be the man. He'd be the guy. You know, he'd be the Mike Landau of Australia. Uh-huh. I, I think so. So yeah, if you want that million dollar part, he's the man to call. I think. Very cool. Very cool. Well, um, and and a, and a phenomenal acoustic player too. I'll just add. Okay. So, yeah. Yeah. No one knows that. Well, not not many people know that. But yeah, hell of a boom chick player. Like. He met Tommy quite a few years ago, and oh, okay. and Tommy injected him with the with the bug, and uh, oh yeah, he's a monster acoustic player. Nice, nice. I would love to hear some of that from him. Yeah, yeah. He should he should do an album, I think. Cool. Hey, speaking of albums, you've you've done a couple on just strictly under your own name as well. So Big Sky came out, I guess, around that time you were moving back to Australia, and Dark Matter was out a few years ago. Are there any plans to to do any more instrumental albums yourself? Um. Oh, I don't know. I'd like to. I mean, I guess here's the thing. Like, like anyone can write songs, you know. Like, I could, I could write an album's worth of songs in two weeks, mm-hmm. and the only thing about them was that they, there would be nothing about them that was in any way, shape, or form special. They'd just be an album full of songs played by a guy who plays guitar, you know. And I'm not saying that everything I write's earth-shattering or special, but I just all I'm saying is that. I think that Big Sky had a lot of identity to it, mm-hmm. um, and and I certainly put a lot of effort into writing those songs. They were not written quickly or or haphazardly. And uh, Dark Matter was the same. And Dark Matter is different. And so I wanted to go a little more, a little heavier and more progressive. Uh huh. Yeah. And just because I'd never done that before, and I guess part of it's just wondering what the hell am I going to do next? And does the world really need another guitar album? I don't know. I, I guess. Rather than just say, well, because see, we're in a different, we're in a different world now, Matt. It's like it's like a lot of times if you are going to do an album, unless you've got money saved up, which I do not, um, you've got to do the crowdfunding thing and expect people to pay up front. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and sure. I I sort of feel like then if you do that, you've got a real obligation to people that it's got to be something that they would remotely expect, you know. So if I turn around and do an all-vocal blues album, they're going to say, well, hang on a minute, you know, I gave you 20 bucks for this thing. So I didn't want this. I want, I want instrumental fusion, you know. And sure. So, yeah, it's a bit of a dilemma, really. But then, you know, by the same token, if I do something radically different, I'd feel guilty expecting people to pay for it anyway. So I really don't know. I, I'm hoping that the space will sort of show up in my life where I've got the time and the right mindset where I can get right. That's what happened with Dark Matter, you know. I just... Yeah had this really open schedule and uh, I just got into the zone of writing and before I, you know, that's, that's the only trouble. Writing's like anything. You've got to practice it. Yeah, sure. And, uh, so yeah, I'm not a very prolific songwriter at all. So it takes me a while to get going and get into it. But yeah, I don't write me off. I may do another one. It just might take me another 10 years to get away. No worries. Well, I reckon, I reckon people would be cool with some more Brett Garson music for sure. Oh, we'll see. Maybe I'll do a song at a time, do that sort of thing. Sure. Brett, it's been awesome talking to you. Um, before we go, I should ask, what's your rig looking like um, these days? Um, yeah, it's funny that because uh, even even on the John gigs, like a lot of time you, you pretty much rock up small amps uh, and then in other cases it might be rented backline. So, okay, yeah. But at, at, for these most recent gigs, I've been using an amp uh, the the brand is uh, SWD. That's S as in Sam and oh, WD. And they're made uh, they're made by some friends of mine in Ballarat. Okay, and, cool. And uh, the the particular one I'm using is a clean amp, but it's beautiful tube amp, hundred watts, so loud as hell. 
and uh, I think it's 100 watts. It's bloody loud and a really nice warm platform for pedals to go into. So okay, uh, nice. just a 112 combo, open back. Yeah. And uh, I've been using the uh, 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 Fractal FX8, which is no, no modeling technology in that. It's just purely a pedal board. Just the pedal of, models. Uh, yeah, yeah. Stomp boxes. Yeah, yeah, the cool. FX. So, and that thing's been brilliant and really bulletproof as well. Like, they, they make that stuff tough. I mean, it's getting knocked around a fair bit out there doing these open-air festivals and things and yep. uh, and solid as a rock. So, yeah, I really, I really can't speak highly enough of the uh, Fractal gear. Really good. Yeah, awesome. And I've, uh, I've actually gone back to playing... Uh, one of the uh, ESP guitars that I had made for me. Um, oh, okay, yep. It's a purple hollow body, sort of semi-hollow thing. Yep. That has little, uh, little, uh, like a small, small stars in it for f holes. Okay. So, yeah, I've just been really digging playing that. I, I was actually playing my Telecaster, which I had refinished, and uh, used to be yellow with a cartoon on it, and I had it refinished in a nice burgundy sort of stain, and um, so I was playing that. But then I just got the bug for playing the ESP again, so I've been enjoying that. Very cool. Is that the one with the uh, two humbuckers, sort of like an offset? Yeah, yeah two humbuckers. Kind of body yeah. shape. Yeah, nice. Nice, cool. And as we yep. speak, I've sort of got you in between festival gigs. Is it, I think you've, you've still got a bunch of those to go with um, with the Farnham Band at the moment. Yeah, yeah, we've got a got a gig this Friday with uh, down in Melbourne in the, in the, in the park and uh, in the gardens. Mm-hmm. And then we go to Perth to play at uh, Rottnest Island. So, yeah, it's great. We're really going all over the place playing a wide variety of places. It's been fantastic. Excellent. And the crowds are just going off, man. I can't get over it. Like, it's John just goes out there and people lose their minds. Like, it's like <laughs> 1986 all over again. It's wow, bizarre. that's so good. But here's the thing, too. Like, I mean, John's still giving you the same show he gave people in 1986. That voice has not deteriorated, you know. It's like... There's a lot of major American acts that come here, and I just do have to say that they're charging top dollar, and you are not getting the same show. A lot of these people can't sing anymore. Uh-huh. You know, there's only so many songs they can hold the microphone out for the crowd to sing, and you think, well, hang on a minute, you know? Yeah, right. So I uh, really, and all the acts, to be honest, like all, like James Brain, Daryl Braithwaite, Ross Wilson, they're, they're all the guys on the gigs, they're pouring their heart and souls out up there and playing it. You know, it's really, really impressive. Yeah, that's great. We had um, we had Brett Kingman on on this show a while, a little while ago too, and he's doing uh, the James. He's been playing with James for years. He's another great guitar player. So it's so good seeing, Absolutely. so good seeing you guys out there and still uh, making some great music. Have you got much planned for the rest of the year once the festival season wraps up? Oh, there's a, there's a few other gigs floating around. Uh, I, I wouldn't mention them just because I I'll believe it when I'm standing on stage. Yeah, that kind sure. of thing. Yeah, but um. Yeah, it's just the, the eternal challenge of the side man, just trying to keep working, yep. you know. I was kind of hoping that I'd all the, the time spent in the States doing albums and particularly my own albums, I was hoping it might have built a career to at least a point where I could have a booking agent and go out and do my own gigs and at least sort of fill in the blanks that way. But, uh, but unfortunately, it was not to be. So uh, that's all right. So you just... Uh, Hopefully just that, I guess that's the thing too, because we're musicians, we love to play. That's all we want to do. We just want to play. And yeah, sure. I know that especially in this sort of fusion y sort of world, like the more live playing you can do in that regard, the better. So yeah. well I mean I I had a I was working with Phil Tertio and Jerry Pantazas and uh 
Craig Newman in a band called Damage. Mm-hmm. And we were doing a lot of gigs here in Melbourne, and we're, we're threatening to fire that up again. Cause, yeah, uh, cool. You know, Phil's, Phil's the primary songwriter for that band, and he's just a genius. So Great. And those guys are so unreal. I've, I've been trying to talk them out of using me in their band for years, but they won't have it. So <laughs> I go, well, all right, you, you, do, you get what you pay for. That's it. You deserve me then. So. <laughs> That's awesome. Definitely fire it up and come to Sydney while you're at it. That, would, right. be, that would be awesome. We should, yeah. We'll get to the basement or something. Yeah, cool. All right. Well, hey, Brett, thank you so much for your time today. It's been fantastic speaking with you and, and hearing about your journey. Your, your story is very inspiring and um and at the end of it, there's, um, like you said, just that passion to get out there and play. Oh, yeah. Yeah, just always willing to make more noise and annoy people. <laughs> <laughs> That's cool. Hey, the last, last thing I want to ask you or, or have you comment on, um, in that Spotlight um, spot in Guitar Player magazine, back when you were 21, you're quoted as saying this, uh, I suppose my ambition is to be heard and loved by guitar players everywhere. I play for fun, not to revolutionize the world of guitar playing. So if somebody says they like my playing, I consider it a very rare and generous compliment. Brett, is that still the case for you today? No, I want to dominate the world and everyone should bow before <laughs> me. Like, uh, nah, nah, that's, well, that's it. The only, the only typo in that is I, I said I, I wanted to be heard and liked by everyone. Uh, okay. <laughs> I, didn't, I, didn't, I didn't say loved. That sounds a bit bizarre. But, uh, yeah, right. It does sound a bit uh, megalomaniac, but uh, <laughs> but um, but no, no. What that's exactly what where I was coming from. I mean, I thought, yeah. well, there's nothing unique about me that I was hearing in that I did that I heard that I was hearing in the people that I was listening to, and I thought, well, you know, if I can just have a career playing this guitar and it doesn't offend too many people, like I would, that would be great, you know. And yeah, cause, and I I really meant that, like. I had this standard rave where people would walk up to me in pubs and they'd go, oh, I've never seen anyone play like you. Uh-huh. And I'd say, well, there's a good reason for that. I said, have you ever heard of Eddie Van Halen or Alan Holdsworth? And they go, no. And see, back then, you've got to understand, this was before Jump and the Beat It solo and everything, yeah. you know. And so I'm doing all this two-hand tapping stuff, and, and in our country area, no one's seen anyone do that stuff because no one even knew about Eddie Van Halen at that uh-huh. stage. I'm pretty sure I was the only Van Halen and Alan Oldsworth fan for miles. <laughs> and I said, no, nah, you got to listen to these guys. And I'd get a beer coaster and I'd write Alan Oldsworth and Eddie Van Halen on it and give that to them. Yeah. <laughs> and they'd sort, of, they'd sort of look me up and down with this weird look on their face and walk off and go, hmm, you know. And uh, I said the same thing to Phil Buckle. I was in Helmets Music in Melbourne mm-hmm. back in the early 80s and I used to go there while they were fixing my gear at Soundworks and play the guitar and – I'd have it so quiet you could barely hear it because I didn't want to offend anybody. And uh, and this head pokes around the corner and it's Phil. <laughs> he said, uh, he said you got, you're doing some pretty interesting stuff there, fella. You know? and, and I said, oh, no, you need to go and listen to Alan Holdsworth at any band. I was, I was looking for a beer coaster to write their names on. You know? And he was the first guy ever that said, no, I've got all their albums. I've heard them. You've got something else going on. That's, that's cool. And, and, and that was when it actually dawned on me. I thought, my God, maybe I do have something going on. So like maybe cool. I've got a sound or a thing, you know, and Phil was the first guy that ever said that to me. So I pretty much owe the fact that I even pursued anything original to Phil Buckle. Wow. You know, was that's cool. <laughs> Very yeah. cool. Well, your goal of not offending anyone, I think you've achieved that. And 
more so, I think you've uh, you've blessed a lot of listeners with uh, with your playing. So, Brett, thank you. Keep going, and um, we look forward to seeing what what's next for your career. Thanks for joining us on the Guitar Speak podcast today. My pleasure. Thanks, Matt. All right, there you go. Brett Garth said, in replay on the Guitar Speak podcast. My great thanks to Brett for his time and also for the permission to use some of those musical excerpts that we heard throughout the episode. What an amazing player. What a humble man and super inspiring. I need to go and practice. <laughs> hey, just uh, before we go, another thanks to Fretboard Biology, our sponsors for today's show. Again, the links are in the show notes where you can follow up and and take a look at the course. I strongly recommend you to check that out. Okay, my name's Matt Wakeling. You've been listening to the Guitar Speak podcast. I'll catch you next time. Bye now.